Hello and welcome to the next episode of the American Experiment Podcast. We're going to switch up the format today. It's going to be our normal interview segment. Uh, it's Friday today, so we're going to have a little fun. My name is Bill Walsh. I'm the Director of Marketing and Communications for Center of the American Experiment. And I'm joined today with uh, two of my colleagues. Bill Glahn is one of our policy analysts. He writes a lot on, the, on our website. He writes on Twitter. You can see him there. And our newest American citizen, John Phelan. Let's start there. John, you're an economist with us in... Uh, you, you became an American citizen this week. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, it was last week, actually, a ceremony in St. Paul. Uh, there were 950 people. Um, it was an awful lot of fun. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's something, I don't know, maybe everyone should do it. Um, it's that uh, you go there and you have to, you know, take a... Do you raise your oath. right hand? You do. You take an oath to forswear allegiance to potentates. It's the only time in my life I will ever say the word potentate. I'm fairly sure. That's but in I, the oath. I, I foreswore uh, to princes, potentates, and various other things. So that's me done. Would I pass the citizenship chap with my with my Minnesota education? I mean, you, you know, <laughs> and that's a question for a lot of Americans. Do we know enough about our own country to pass that citizenship test? They really don't grill you that hard, I'll be honest. Um, you have to get six out of ten questions right um, in, your, in your interview. I think I could. The, the ones I remember, can you name two federal holidays – can you name three of the original 13 colonies and who was president during World War One? Those Ooh. are the only questions I can remember them asking me. All right, we're not going to quiz each other. Bill, can you get one of those questions? Woodrow yeah. Wilson. Oh, excellent, excellent, excellent. There's so many federal holidays now. I mean, is Juneteenth a federal holiday? That, that might be an answer. It is. Days. Yeah, see, I could get the newest federal holiday, Juneteenth. All right, we're going to do a little, uh, for the, thanks for that introduction, by the way. We're going to do uh, a fun format. We'll do a little McLaughlin group that our older viewers will know. You know, we're going to go through several issues in this podcast. And then when we're done, we're going to end the podcast. No time limit. Uh, so issue one, Tim Walls goes to, to Iowa. Uh, the governor of Minnesota traveled to Iowa. The Iowa State Fair is going on. And uh, ostensibly to stump for President Biden, because there's a lot of Republican activity going down there for the primary. And we can start with a clip. We can actually hear Governor Walls in Iowa speaking to Iowans. ...the values of slavery. You're not going to hear those types of conversations. You're not going to hear us talk about reducing personal freedoms. And Minnesota, we're not interested in banning books. We're interested in banishing hunger from our schools. That's why we provided meals for every single child. That's what's coming out of the administration. We've got an opportunity to continue to move this country forward. We have an opportunity in the states to use the policies that the Biden-Harris administration put forward to strengthen the middle class, to strengthen and build from the bottom up and the middle out. Those are real opportunities. All right, so our beloved leader, Governor Tim Walls, uh, travels down to Iowa to lecture Iowegians. Uh, and one of the things he like, likes to say is that we like to mind our own business as Minnesotans. Is that minding his own business? Yeah, he minds his own business by traveling down to Iowa to harangue random passers-by at the state fair in Iowa. And I guess there was a bunch of Republicans making appearances at the fair in anticipation of the caucuses that are going to be early next year. So he's doing counter-programming. But my favorite part of the video is if you pay attention to the people behind him, they're just ignoring him. So crazy man gesturing wildly, going on and on about slavery or something. And they're just on their way to get a corn dog or on their way to see some prize livestock and paying him no mind. Well, the beer garden was nearby, maybe, but uh, they need a soapbox for the guy. Maybe they could put him up on a soapbox. But a couple of things he says, though, in that, and he repeats this a lot. 
Uh, we're not banning books in Minnesota. Are we banning books anywhere, John? I mean, we, I think we've changed the definition of banning books. No, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous, and it's this kind of war on language, really. Um, books aren't being banned. I've looked into this. You know, other people looked into it a lot more closely. But basically, you know, what's happening is books that aren't appropriate for certain ages aren't being provided in government libraries, which is what school libraries are. They're government libraries. If you want to buy pornography for your kids, go and do it. But the government's not going to pay for it for you. And I have to say, you know, if I walk into a bookstore and they're not selling The Road to Serfdom or Free to Choose or something like that, the book isn't banned. It's just not for sale there. It's just not available there. Right. A middle school library can only have a few thousand books maximum. So they're making... They're making decisions on which books are in that library. They're not banning every other book, but that's like you say, the language is gone. The other thing he said is, uh, uh, "We're not. Va- we don't value slavery. We're not valuing slavery or finding value in slavery," which is a an, uh, a reference to Florida law or Florida rules on. Um, on again, uh, their standards. Are you familiar with this one, Bill? Yeah, it's uh, they're trying to teach about American history and. There's lots of nuance in our great story as you were learning in your citizenship process. And so people have gone and picked out part of a sentence here, part of a sentence there, and somehow, because Ron DeSantis is running for president, trying to make an issue out of Florida is promoting slavery. and they're Slavery doing no, is good. It was they're, good they're for They're doing those. no such thing. There's not a debate about the... Uh, uh, bringing back slavery or a debate about the uh, the advisory of uh, of getting rid of it. This is a completely manufactured issue trying to smear a presidential candidate. And can I just um, chip in here and say that when you look at the contemporary debate, there is nobody in America now who is more pro-slavery than the left. Um, the argument that things like the 1619 Project put forward is that all American wealth is based on slavery and slave labor. That's not true. Um, if it was true, the South would have won the Civil War. Um, in the end, they were reduced at the very end of it to shaking down border towns for cash. Um, but you know, this argument that slavery was a good thing and that there was some value from it, I don't see that it's the Florida Board of Education putting that forward. Increasingly, it's people on the left who put that argument forward. So the next time we do a show like this, we'll have the producer get the clip of the Minnesota Press challenging Governor Walls on the factual accuracy of his statements. No, I'm just kidding. That won't happen. Uh, Issue two. uh, Let's talk Minneapolis. Um, The Minneapolis City Council. All seats. Is it all seats? 13 seats up for re-election in the city uh, elections this year. And you may say, I don't live in Minneapolis. What does it matter? Well, it does matter. It's the state's largest city. And those policies, you know, they tend to flow up sometimes. So, Bill, you've done a lot of writing and research on the Minneapolis school elections. Give Give us the overview. Yeah, so all 13 seats on the Minneapolis City Council are up for election this year. Uh, the mayor uh, got reelected a couple of years ago, so he still has a couple more years left on his term, but the city council's up for reelection. And again, if you're not in Minneapolis or you're not a Democrat, you would think, well, what does this have to do with me? But all these horrible policies <laughs> come up to the state level and they try to implement them at the state level. But what is interesting to me, and uh, we have a... a, a tweet that the vice chair of the Minneapolis DFL put out railing against the conservatives on the Minneapolis city council. Wait, now, what, what, what conservatives? Yeah. So if, if you're like me and you look at the Minneapolis city council, all you see is far left and extreme left. Yeah. There, there doesn't seem to be much of a ideological variety on the Minneapolis city council, but it's the narcissism of small differences. 
to an outside observer, they all look pretty much the same, but inside there is a very stark divide, very bitter politics. Uh, and the idea is you have far left members and then you have people who might be considered slightly more moderate who are branded conservatives. Yeah, I'm going to show my age, but I'm, I want to say Denny, Denny Shulstead, Dennis Shulstead in the 80s was was probably our last Republican uh, Minneapolis city councilman. And you got to go back to the 80s uh, right. to find and that. So there hasn't been a Republican. And so everyone on the city council, at least 12 on the city council, are Democrats. And you have one avowed socialist. Okay. And oddly enough, the avowed socialist is the one who's running unopposed this cycle. And all the other races are competitive. Some of them have three or four members. And we have this phenomenon in Minneapolis where they use ranked choice voting. Mm -hmm. So this goofy algorithm is going to decide who the winner is. And most of them, I think it's eight of the 13, have three or four candidates. So this RCV, ranked choice voting, is going to decide. And so because of that, we don't have a primary. There's not a primary election in Minneapolis. So you don't which, have... Which would normally whittle down yeah, the would, candidates uh, to one on each one party. One for each party, whether that party is the Republicans or the Socialist Worker parties, or you would, you would narrow down the field. And so now we have all these races where you have Democrats running against other Democrats, and it's this intramural battle. And so they've made these artisti- artificial distinctions between quote, conservative Democrats or moderate Democrats and then more liberal, more progressive Democrats. And you have independent expenditure groups being formed to promote this idea we need a progressive majority on the city council. we got to get rid of this, quote, conservative majority on the Minneapolis City Council. And case in point was this vote taken just yesterday by the city council on this Uber Lyft bill. So they've decided that uh, drivers who participate in these rideshare programs don't make enough money. So they wanna increase the minimum compensation available to Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, these rideshare companies. And of course, for their part, these companies say, you do that, we're gonna pull out of the state. I keep talking about how these policies leak out to the state level. Uh, our current governor, Governor Walls, who we showed the video mm-hmm. of, he has been governor for five years, this May, he issued his first ever veto of any bill, and this was the bill he vetoed. They wanted to have this minimum wage for Uber and Lyft drivers. Uh, I think nation, he took an statewide. Uber to Iowa, actually. Statewide. It's a long, uh, it's an expensive one, but yeah. Go ahead. Uh, and so uh, he vetoed that bill, and they decided, well, we're Minneapolis. We can do whatever we want, so we're going to just make it apply in Minneapolis. And so they had a vote seven to five. One member was absent and didn't vote, but they had that so-called progressive majority voted seven to five. We don't know what the mayor is going to do with the bill, whether he'll veto it or sign it. All right, let's, let's bring in our resident economist. Um, a city government <clears throat> telling a private corporation what they can pay their employees and what kind of benefits they can offer their employees. How's this going to go? How's it going to work? What's going to happen? Uh, well, basically, these businesses will stop operating in Minneapolis. Um, they said that's what they're going to do. Uh, and what's really interesting about this is that there's some really good research that's come out of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis in the last couple of years on the effects of minimum wage hikes in the Twin Cities. And it shows very, very clearly that actually it's not just the wage hikes that have destroyed jobs, it's the mere expectation of these wage hikes that's destroyed jobs. So we know what's going to happen. And one of the things I find incredible about this is the way that you have people saying, oh, it's terrible itself, but these wages need to go up. I can't do this, I can't do that. Well, if it's that terrible, why are you doing it? 
Yeah. Why don't you go somewhere else and get another job? I saw somebody respond to uh, Uber and Lyft. Uber and Lyft said, we're going to pull out of the cities if you pass this. And I saw a response on Twitter where someone said, the companies will leave, but the drivers will still be there. And so, you know, you won't lose the service. Well, if, if Uber and Lyft are completely peripheral to all this, why are these people working for them? Why don't they go and form a cab company now? You know, and, and create an app independent. You know, yeah. well, <laughs> apparently, apparently yeah. it's that easy. Apparently, Uber yeah. and Lyft had no value. Yeah. It's all about the labor, all about the drivers. Um, so why aren't they doing that now? All right. You want to hear my conspiracy theory on this? Go on. And I, I got to research this and I haven't been able to make it make it real. But these these folks protesting the Uber and Lyft, Lyft wages are, in fact, cab drivers. Because Uber and Lyft came into Minneapolis and in many other cities and really did some real harm to, to traditional cab services. And if they left, the cabs would, would replace the business. You'd have to call a cab again. You have to call a yellow cab or some other uh, suburban cab, whatever it is. So I, my conspiracy theory is that it's cab drivers uniting uh, to raise this as an issue and kill Uber and Lyft, kill their competition. I do think, actually, that, the, that Fry will veto this measure. Because this is one of those things, it, it kind of it, it hits the swing voters where they live. There's lots of people in those kind of suburban areas who use Uber and use Lyft. I've even used it to get home, um, you know. And so I think it's one of those things. From the pub? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's one of those things that they can't afford to, to let this go because people people in the suburbs can vote for a lot of this nonsense and it gets confined to the cities. This is, this is sort of that theme that Bill was talking about. The, yeah. you know, the, there's no real, there's no conservatives, but there's an adults and children thing going on here. And you saw it at the legislature, you know, the children running the legislature we, we went off the cliff as our tour showed um, and passed this. And uh, Walls had to be the adult. Probably to, didn't want to be, but he had to veto that bill. And, and Fry's going to have to do the same thing. Yeah, to give you another example from St. Paul, you had that gunfight in a bar a couple of years ago, I think it was now, and um, somebody died. Um, and because that was a bar that lots of right. middle-class suburban right. people go into before gigs and hockey games. Before, at the, the, before the Minnesota State High School yeah. hockey tournament. Suddenly the DFL cared about gun crime in the cities. Yep. Suddenly they cared, and you saw Amy Klobuchar tweeted, you saw the mayor tweet, you saw the governor tweet about this, because suddenly it was their swing voters getting hit. All right. Issue four, as McLaughlin would say. Um uh, for, for a long time, national groups rank the states, and we have all these business rankings, and there's been a lot of business rankings in the news lately. And I remember this used to drive me nuts when Mark Dayton was governor, and he'd, he'd do a press release every time one of these come out. We're number one. you know, Minnesota's number one in the nation, and it was a business ranking. And for, it used to be that our high education scores, our aggregate education scores, like an SATs or ACTs or the NAEP scores, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, that showed Minnesota to be such, such an outlier in education that the score in education would bring up our entire business ranking, and that would be what's, what underlies our Minnesota high ranking, even though arguably not good for business. But but that's kind of changed now. And there's some new rankings out where, where the issue is not just strong education, but they've really branched out. You wrote recently about, I think, was it the Wallet Hub one that said we we're number one or top five or something? The one I, I looked at was CNBC's ranking of states for business. Um, and this, this really was... I, I had to respond to this because it was getting. We, we came, I think, fifth, the fifth yeah. best state for business. We just edged Texas. We're better than Texas. Me. Yeah, which is. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the. And, and you saw politicians and the local local media went crazy about this. 
Every local media outlet reported this mm -hmm. ranking. None of the ones... None 3M, of them, in fact, pulled all of their headquarters back from Austin. No, they didn't. They're still there. <laughs> well, so. 19,400 people leave the Twin Cities, uh, leave Minnesota on net in one year. It's the biggest outflow in 30 years, and none of the media touches it as a story. CNBC puts together some crazy ranking, and it's all over the place. Um, and it, I think this goes to show some of the problems that you've got with the media here. Um, but one of, And the politicians pushed it as well. But the thing is, if you're looking at these rankings of states to, for business, you would expect them to be correlated with things that businesses do, such as hiring people, such as just starting businesses, such as capital investment. And you don't find that. Things with objective data we yeah, can actually measure. Exactly. You don't find that these rankings... So there's no statistically significant relationship uh, between these business rankings and capital per worker investment uh, and between business uh, formation. There is a statistically significant relationship with job formation. Um, but, you know, to paraphrase Meatloaf, you know, one out of three is bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then it gets even worse. There's the other ranking which found us very high as uh, states to live and work in. Now, all this is is one sub-index from the state business rankings. Now, this ranking was really, really bad because it showed that, again, Minnesota was very, very high. But the, the bottom 10 states uh, for states to live and work in, according to this ranking, included Texas, Florida. So these are states that where are, people are going. Yeah, bringing huge numbers. There's something like, I think these, these, these 10 states at the bottom, I think they managed to draw in on net something like 700,000 residents from other parts of America in one year, whereas the 10 states ranked as the best states to live in lost about 170,000 residents on net, including our 19,400. Yeah. And I think I actually ran the numbers on this. For every point up those rankings you move, becoming a better state to live and work in, you actually lose 2,700 residents an inverse, on net. An inverse rating. Yeah, it's a statistically significant yeah. and negative relationship. So, Bill, one of the topics in this CNBC ranking was, I thought, outrageous, uh, even related to the last legislative session. It's abortion. They, abortion. They explicitly rank states based on their abortion laws. So one of the reasons why states like Texas, Florida, some of these other southern states, which do really well in business friendliness, tax structure, everything else, they have limits on abortions. And so CNBC put their thumb on the scale. The more liberal your abortion law, the higher quality of life they attribute to that state. So they have the word abortion in their criteria, and they rank states on how permissive their abortion laws are, and that drives a lot of this result. And this is something that should concern lefties, I think, because if these rankings don't measure you know, the best states to live and work in, they don't measure the best states for business, what they actually do measure, fairly explicitly, as Bill says, is how liberal a state is, then what these rankings show you is that the more liberal a state becomes, the more people leave. <laughs> yeah, that's illustrative. Yeah, we'll have to watch that. All right, final topic, and I think we'll use a little lighter on the end of our segment here, a little cultural uh, reference. There's a new song that is sweeping the nation uh, from East Coast to West Coast, uh, and especially in Virginia. Can we, can we play the song for everybody? Uh, it's called, what's it called? Uh, um, Rich Men North of Richmond, uh, referring to Richmond, Virginia, right? Let's play the song. I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is. Living in the new world With an old soul These rich men north of Richmond Lord knows they all just want to have total control Want to know what you think Want to know what you do And they don't think you know But I know that you do 
Okay, it's really the words that are that are really resonating with people. Like this guy's having concerts now, and people are showing up in the thousands to to hear him perform the song. Uh, it's really taken off in a viral way, but it must have struck a nerve. What nerve did it strike? I mean, what 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 is causing the furor over the song? One thing I think is really interesting about this this the whole phenomenon is to see the reaction to it. Um, so this song's come out and it's this guy and he's complaining about, you know, the, the government taxes all his money, uh, big businesses, all the rest of it. He complains about people on welfare living off his money as well. Um, now, all this is, is used to be kind of grist for a left wing mill. You know, I was uh, just listening the other day to, to Woody Guthrie. Um, the old song Pretty Boy Floyd about the Depression era bank robber who robbed banks because they robbed the people. Um, I think uh, Bob Dylan, you know, I, I could quote you some Bob Dylan lyrics, you know, um, when he said a very great man once said that some people rob you with a fountain pen. Don't take long to, to take too long to find out just what he was talking about. And then you come up to uh, Bruce Springsteen. You know, born in the USA, mm -hmm. you know, that's a whole song about a guy comes back from Vietnam, can't get a job, gets screwed by the system, um, end up like a dog that's been beat too much till you spend half your life just covering up. You know, and these used to be left wing themes. The left used to embrace stuff like this. Now they see a song like this or they hear a song like this and they go crazy. It's white supremacy like everything else is. And I think what you see here and what I think is really interesting about this is the new identification with the American left, not with people like this guy singing, but with the rich men north of Richmond. Those are the people they identify with now. Yeah, and what did Obama, what was the term he used for, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember, uh, not grip, um, but clingers. Clingers, clingers. Clingers, clingers yeah, with guns I mean, and so, their, uh, yeah. their uh, boomsticks and their sky god. Yeah, so it's kind of similar. Bill, you grew up in, in uh, south yeah. of Richmond or in so, near Richmond, right? So I, I looked up this uh, troubadour and he uh, lives in a town called Farmville. It's a real town. I've been there before. It's about 45, 50 miles east of where I grew up in the Commonwealth. And maybe a little bit of geography of the Commonwealth would uh, help people understand the song. So uh, the city of Richmond, the state capital, is in the middle part of the state. The Washington, D.C. suburbs with all the uh, defense contractors and consultants and government bureaucrats extends southward from the District of Columbia towards Richmond. The suburbs and exurbs reach almost the outskirts of the state capital. And so you get not too far north of Richmond and you get into that Washington, D.C. orbit with all of the money, the tax money, all the bureaucrats and the consultants. And so I grew up south of Richmond, I, I suppose, uh, in terms of this geography. But I, I fully understand what it is he's complaining about. Well, great. So next week on the American Experiment podcast, Bill Glahn will be uh, debuting his new song, South of Richmond, uh, from uh, Troubadour, Bill Glahn. No, I'm kidding. But that is all the time we have. Actually, we don't have any time limits, but we're going to end the show with that segment on that final word. Thanks for watching and listening to the American Experiment podcast. We'll see you next time.